0: Welcome, everyone, to the Rethink It podcast, a podcast designed for equipping families and individuals struggling with brain health issues to identify practical, natural health science and lifestyle approaches to restore optimal brain health and prevent dementia. My podcast, my newsletter, my website, and my integrative practice all focus on providing down to earth solutions for upgrading and protecting brain health. This podcast is meant to supply women with brain fog and chronic health issues with the knowledge to choose affordable, effective tools and techniques that go beyond brain hacking. The goal is to preserve your quality of life, your health, your freedom, and your independence. I'm excited you're here today. I'm Sandy, your host for the next 30 minutes to an hour. In the last episode, we touched on how gut health influences brain health and long-term brain function. In today's podcast, ADHD, Rethinking the Causes and Link to Dementia, we are going to dive into ADHD and the link between having symptoms of ADHD early in life and how that is connected with deteriorating brain health later in life if left unaddressed. Before we get into it, I want to invite you to subscribe, like, and share this podcast if you find it to be helpful in your journey toward better brain health. Well, let's get into it. In the last two years, I have seen an increase in the number of adults who have been diagnosed with ADHD. In the past, this has largely been a diagnosis seen in children, and I would say that most of us are not hard-pressed to think of at least one person in their life who has been diagnosed with this or suffers with symptoms of inattention and lack of focus. It is extremely common, but the the commonness of this diagnosis and the, the fact that it is socially acceptable does not mean it comes without health risks just as significant as more obviously debilitating health issues like, say, autism or Parkinson's or MS. In my own personal little world, I have a spouse, a sibling, a parent, and three children who have qualified for this diagnosis. I shared a little bit about my oldest child and his journey through ADHD, and he's agreed to chat with us about this experience at some point, so I look forward to giving you his perspective. But today, I want to look at some of the research about the connection between ADHD and long-term brain health. I also um, want to give you some resources, some diet suggestions, and perspectives to consider when working with ADHD. This podcast is designed to empower women and families to make the changes now that will prevent severe life-altering brain changes later in life. So let's start with the new research and some of the history around this diagnosis. First of all, ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder that according to medical research affects about 10% of children worldwide. The statistics in the U.S. aren't much different. I will make one comment here. It is important to know that published research on data and statistics and even standards of care changes in medicine are usually on research that is 8 to 10 years old. We don't publish medical studies about research very quickly because of the necessary but rigorous peer review and approval process. So in other words, when you read a medical study, the research is usually a decade old. This delay wasn't really an issue about 50 years ago, but today in today's internet world, um, it seems ridiculously slow. But back to ADHD. Uh, symptoms, uh, typical symptoms of ADHD, obviously most people know this, include inattention, hyperactivity, and the worst one, impulsivity. From what I understand from my psychology colleagues, ADD without hyperactivity and ADHD with hyperactivity are now all considered under the umbrella of ADHD. So you, you go to a psychologist, they're gonna say, even if you're not hyperactive, you just can't focus, they're gonna, they're gonna diagnose you with ADHD. So just so you know, in case you didn't know, that's the, uh, that's the reality. I wanna share a little history here because history gives us perspective. Hyperactivity was rarely discussed in either medical or educational circles until about the mid 1950s. Despite this, many medical texts, self-help manuals aimed at parents, and even a a handful of historical works focusing on the disorder have suggested that the history of hyperactivity dates back to at least the mid 19th century. And that is um, that it can actually be diagnosed retrospectively in historical figures, which I thought was pretty interesting, like Lord Byron, uh, Mozart, Oliver Cromwell, Winston Churchill. So clearly folks with ADHD may uh, may struggle with focus, attention, and impulsivity, but there's obviously also uh, some gifting that happens there with creativity and intelligence. The time before ADHD was recog- officially recognized or deemed pathological um, in the mid-1950s is called the prehistory of the illness. What is noticeable when you look at the prehistory of ADHD is that it has long been associated with other types of problematic childhood behaviors. Think Dennis the Menace. Although it is not, was not until the 1950s that this behavior was seen as intrinsically pathological, It is evident that psychiatrists and pediatricians began associating troubling childhood behavior with neurological dysfunction as early as the 1900s. According to most accounts of the the prehistory of ADHD, the first hyperactive child was Fidgety Philip. He was a character in a series of nursery rhymes written by a German pediatrician named Heinrich Hoffmann, and it was published in 1845. Now, as a second-generation German-American, German American, I grew up reading this oddly graphic children's book written by Heinrich Hoffmann called The Struwwelpeter*. the book intended to teach children the importance of obedience by assigning extreme consequences to disobedience. <laughs> In The Struwwelpeter*, we are introduced to fidgety Philip, and here's how the story from 1845 reads. All right, pay attention, guys. This is kind of crazy. Fidgety Philip won't sit still. He wriggles and giggles, and then I declare, swung backward and forward and tilts up his chair. Just like any rocking horse, Philip, I'm getting cross. See the naughty, restless child growing still more rude and wild till his chair falls over quite. Philip screams with all his might, catches the cloth, but then that makes matters worse again. Down upon the ground they fall, glasses, bread, knives, forks, and all. How mama did fret and and frown when she saw them tumbling down, and papa made such a face. Philip is in sad disgrace. You can see how this behavior was negatively viewed from the onset, and I'm sure you can see how children struggling with this disorder may have also struggled with chronic issues of, say, low self-esteem, and maybe even depression. And as we all know today, that's very common with people with ADHD. So switching gears a little, I would like to spend some time exploring the connection between ADHD and dementia. So let's look at the, the research in this area. ADHD has long been considered a disorder that obviously primarily affects children. But recent research has suggested that it may also be associated with cognitive decline later in life, particularly dementia. People with ADHD tend to have difficulties with similar things as those suffering from dementia do. They struggle with executive functioning, which includes skills like planning, organizing, completing tasks. Of course, this leads to other problems like issues with time management, prioritizing, and say (laughs) follow-through. It is a real challenge to be a parent of a child with ADHD because these executive functioning struggles can heavily impact obviously academic, occupational, and social functioning, and the result of that is, is low self-esteem and higher rates of anxiety and depression. Think fidgety Philip. He is in such a sad disgrace. <laughs> Poor kid. When it comes to the research about the link between ADHD and dementia, There was actually a large longitudinal study that was published back in 2012 that looked at 6,000 adults and found that those who had been diagnosed with ADHD in childhood were significantly more likely to develop dementia later in life than those who were not. Several other studies have been published since then, which only confirm this, even in esteemed medical journals like JAMA. The exact mechanism of this connection is not really fully understood. But there are several theories that have been proposed. One theory suggests that ADHD may lead to changes in the brain, which makes people with ADHD more susceptible to to dementia. For example, some studies have suggested that ADHD is associated with reduced gray matter volume in the brain, particularly in the areas involved in executive function, attention, and memory. That's your prefrontal cortex. These changes may make it more difficult for folks with ADHD to compensate for cognitive decline later in life. This leads to a higher risk of obviously developing dementia. Another theory suggests that ADHD and dementia may share common risk factors. For example, both conditions are associated with a history of head trauma, which may increase the risk of developing dementia. Similarly, both ADHD and dementia have been associated with genetic factors that may influence brain function and increase the risk of cognitive decline. One thing to remember is that head injury is a trigger for brain inflammation, but many other things can create a similar trigger, like chemical exposures and mold. When I took my son to see a psychiatrist for his symptoms around 7 and 8, now he had been seen prior around 7, 4 or 5 by a psychologist and had been diagnosed and had been started on medications. We were just checking back in with a different psychiatrist at that age um but it was interesting to me because one of the things she asked asked about was trauma at birth i don't that i remember her asking i'm pretty sure the other one probably did too but i remember this one (laughs) because it was it was a noticeable thing maybe because i had i don't know because I had finished school. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I just remember her asking this. And what was interesting was that my son had been born in an emergency C-section because he had a cord wrapped around his neck. And that was causing poor circulation to his brain during contractions. This is a trauma that affects the brain, which can be linked to symptoms of ADHD and tra- um, and later in life and in childhood. We might also consider the fact that those who are diagnosed with ADHD early in life are often medicated with traditional means, meaning they are given amphetamines to increase the production of dopamine and norepinephrine in the prefrontal cortex. When you flood the brain with exogenous, meaning not native neurotransmitters, this leads to changes in the cell receptors of the brain and the rest of the body in developing brains this can lead to changes in the brain that persist even after stopping medication treatments this is called neurochemical imprinting and was recently described in a stu- study published in JAMA psychiatry though most holistic practitioners have argued this to be the case for some time it is pretty remarkable that that this finding was acknowledged in mainstream in like a mainstream medical journal The other more holistic thing to consider is that these neurotransmitters, the ones that form, that are in the form of ADHD meds, don't magically affect the receptors of just the brain alone. They affect every cell with a dopamine or norepinephrine receptor. In critical care medicine, when you say dopamine or norepinephrine, most practitioners think blood pressure, (laughs) Specifically, we use these medications to st- that stimulate dopamine or norepinephrine to as a means to elevate blood pressure in patients who are unstable or have a low blood pressure. When I was practicing cardiac anesthesia, these were typical tools in my tool bag. So let's think about this logically. If we change the receptors that are not just involved in concentration, but also in blood pressure regulation, do you think that taking medications to increase these neurotransmitters will have an effect on blood pressure? The resounding answer is, of course. (laughs) When I see an adult patient on an ADHD medication in my clinic or in the OR, then they are often hypertensive or they're taking blood pressure medication as well. This is just basic understanding of cause and effect and basic physiology. So why do I mention this in regards to the link between ADHD and dementia? Well, it is well known in the medical literature that there's a clear link between dementia and high blood pressure and diabetes. In fact, dementia has recently been coined type 3 diabetes. So taking a medication that constantly promotes an elevation in your blood pressure, even in childhood, logically cannot be without risk to the brain. What causes ADHD and how do those factors affect the brain? ADHD is a frustrating diagnosis and condition because when it comes to cause and effect, it doesn't neatly fit into a box. Let me explain with an example. Type 1 diabetes occurs when there is damage to the beta cells of your pancreas, commonly after a viral infection. It's considered to be an autoimmune response after a sickness leading to the destruction of those cells That The beta cells are responsible for making insulin, so it results in low or no insulin production, which is measurable, and the treatment is to give insulin. ADHD cannot be explained that way. We cannot measure brain neurotransmitters accurately to prove that ADHD is caused by a neurotransmitter deficiency. No study has ever done so. Instead, the evidence suggests that ADHD is linked to a wide host of environmental, genetic, and dietary causes. The first person in medical history to really point this out was a guy named Dr. Feingold. Dr. Benjamin Feingold was one of the first researchers to explore the link between diet and ADHD. In the 1970s, Dr. Feingold, who was working as an allergist in San Francisco, hypothesized that food allergies such as artificial colors, flavors, and preservatives, were contributing to the symptoms of ADHD. He developed what became known as the Feingold diet, which involved removing these additives from the diet, and he found that many children with ADHD showed improvement in their symptoms. He subsequently published a book called Why Your Child is Hyperactive, expounding on this finding, and I'm going to link to it in the show notes in case you want to pick it up and read it on your own. It's Just because it's old doesn't mean it's not accurate. <laughs> this, this whole book and all this information that he published led to a wave of popularity, and the reception by the public and many families was positive. And many people implemented his principles into their diet, and they found improvements in the symptoms of their children. As quickly as his popularity began, the medical community began to challenge his findings with, quote, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies. And their goal was aimed at demonstrating that his diet showed no statistically significant improvements. And when they finished the studies, they claimed that that's exactly what happened. Their studies proved there was no improvement, no statistically significant improvements. Oh, I can tell you this, guys. (laughs) His diet guidelines were statistically significant in our home Every one of my children saw improvements. His diet eliminated particularly nasty preservatives like BHA, BHT, TBHQ, um, and I'm not going to try to say those—they're long butyri blah 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 blah. blah. <laughs> but these things are actually still commonly used in snack f- foods. I think they've gone to lengths to hide them, maybe in the in the under the umbrella of natural flavors or preservatives, and I actually list them out, but I did pick up a snack bag that was in the um, hospital of Cheetos and I had it listed. Can you believe that? <laughs> These preservatives actually have been subsequently shown to cause hyperactivity and, and, and inattention in children and migraines in adults. He also eliminated all food colorings Dr. Feingold is the author of the idea that Red 40 causes hyperactivity. That's where we get that idea. So the next time you're at a party and they're serving Hawaiian punch, pick up that label and look at it. It still contains Red 40. It was mind blown. We were at a, a um, like a Girl Scouts, it's American Heritage Girls <laughs> event, and they were doing the end of Christmas event or whatever, and they were serving all the bad things. And they served Hawaiian punch. And I looked at the label and I just I just for some reason was hoping that Red 40 had gone the way of the dodo and wasn't <laughs> used any longer. But no, it is. It really is. So anyhow, um, the reality is that all food dyes are linked to some degree of either allergic responses in the body or inflammation, commonly in the nervous system. Remember, Dr. Feingold was an allergist. And here's the kicker. If you open the package insert of your medications, you will find all active and inactive inactive ingredients listed in every package insert for ADHD medications that I have reviewed. I have found in all of them listed in the inactive ingredient list, food dyes. For example, when I reviewed Vyvanse, which is the medication my son was on, when I reviewed that several years ago, the inactive ingredient included red six, yellow three, blue one, along with iron oxide. The state of New Jersey issued a safety warning about handling iron oxide, much less consuming it. You can find a copy of this package and insert, by the way, on my website under the blog heading ADHD Shocker. <laughs> if you have a child who has Um, really severe responses to weaning off of these medications, it could very likely be due to the food dyes found in the very medication they're taking. Basically, we're giving them the very thing that triggers hyperactivity while medicating them for the symptoms. I can spend a ton more time on this, but let's look at the other possible causes of ADHD. If you want more information about the Feingold diet, please go to feingold.org and support this nonprofit, which continues its work. to con- like They continue to look at foods to see if they're ADHD friendly and if they have any hidden ingredients. So it's well worth um, supporting them. Dr. Feingold was onto something when um, considering allergies as a cause of disruptive behavior. In fact, there are many recent studies that have been published confirming this. Let me point out one thing. Allergies are not just hives, itchy, itching, and runny noses like you might be thinking of. That's the first place most people go. It's the first place I used to go. But in the testing I do, I actually look for allergic responses that are delayed, some showing up days later and some as long as weeks later after the exposure. They are measured by immune globulins, and one of the reasons that we should always check the stool for delayed immune responses because it shows up in your digestive system. So let's look at some of the studies. In 2011, a study was published in the Journal of Attention Disorders that found that children with ADHD were more likely to have food allergies than children without ADHD. Another study published in the Journal of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology in 2014 found that children with ADHD and food allergies had more severe ADHD symptoms than children with ADHD and no food allergies. Environmental conditions also contribute to ADHD. Petroleum-based products, which are also, by the way, part of the Feingold research, and contribute to inflammation of the nervous system and symptoms of ADHD. So I want you to think about your plug-ins, your scented candles, perfumes, perfumed lotions, and even just plain petroleum-based lotions, um, your Vicks Rub; Those are all basically straight-up petroleum, and they absorb through the skin and cause neurological inflammation. Mold in the environment is not only immune-suppressing, but it contributes to widespread immune dysregulation including allergies. It also um, causes generalized nervous system inflammation, which is absolutely going to result in cognitive function issues. I would consider trauma as another environmental condition that causes symptoms of ADHD. This is tremendously common. Here's how we define trauma. And trauma is an emotional response to a distressing or a disturbing event that threatens one's physical or emotional well-being. There's a body of evidence that suggests that childhood trauma, which occurs before 18, may be linked to ADHD. All of the studies that I, that have looked at children who have been exposed to various forms of abuse or neglect demonstrate a higher risk of ADHD. These studies suggest that trauma leads to changes in the brain in that prefrontal cortex but also in the hypothalamic pituitary system and with the dopamine receptors. The prefrontal cortex is that area that controls working memory and impulse control and attention and even personality. The hypothalamic pituitary system regulates your hormones, most of them in the body. And researchers believe that the trauma leads to a disruption of the system, which leads to elevated cortisol levels and an abnormal stress response, which results And ADHD symptoms. There are a few more causes of ADHD to consider, and I will finish this podcast touching on these and some of the things you can do now to reduce your symptoms. One thing to consider as a cause of ADHD is also nutritional deficiencies. With more and more pesticide use on our food, contaminations in our water, gut inflammation has become commonplace. When your gut's inflamed, you won't absorb nutrients well in your food from your food. Furthermore, our food is more and more nutritionally deplete. It's important to remember that we don't live in a bubble. The environment around us influences us. When we spray pesticide on our crops, this results in micronutrient depletion in the soil. The de- depleted soil brings forth depleted crops, which we consume with our inflamed guts, leading to poor overall nutritional consumption. And this is why everyone basically needs to be on a, at least a minimum, a whole food multivitamin and an omega. The last possible cause of ADHD is genetic mutations. In my practice, I'm seeing far more people with gene mutations, many of which affect the way we clear toxins. When the genes that control detoxification are not working well, then we store toxins in our bodies. These toxins eventually lead to inflammation all over our body systems, including the nervous system. One of the most well-known mutations is a mutation called MTHFR. It's short for a long complex enzyme that is deficient. Um, And it involves in, it involves in a system, it's involved in a system that basically adds a methylation group to a molecule so that it can clear the toxin. Okay. So, this mutation is more widely known than the others. I think if you just go on Instagram and you just type in MDHFR, you'll pick up tons of research. But there's way more mutations than, than, than this one mutation alone, although this one gets a lot of press. Um, the other one, there are other ones that actually have a more direct impact on the brain, and in particular, dopamine. I often discover clients with these other mutations. Um, One that just comes to mind is the COMT mutation. This mutation leads to like imbalances of estrogen and dopamine levels, which results in a host of brain issues. So like I said, ADHD is not a straightforward condition with one cause and one solution like say type 1 diabetes. The key is to start investigating the situation. Did the person experience a birth trauma or a childhood trauma or neglect? Are you born with genetic mutations that may influence detoxification or brain function? Is the environment moldy or full of chemicals or perfumes? How is your diet and your nutritional balance? Are there environmental allergies or food allergies? We have to look at all of this. But I want to wrap up by reminding you that the reason this matters in our Rethink It podcast is because brain health in childhood and early adulthood affects your brain health long term. Don't forget that early-onset dementia is on the rise, and I want all of you to know how to make simple changes in your life now to avoid being another dementia statistic. The challenge for this podcast that I give everybody, you know, every podcast, we get a challenge. The challenge I'm going to give you guys for this podcast is to check your environment. Are you running scented candles or plugins to hide the smell of mold? I did that. If that's you, you might look at switching to maybe say essential oils, but please make sure that you're not buying essential oils that are just perfumes claiming to be essential oils because that defeats the purpose. If you smell mold, get an inspector in your home to check. I will include a link to a mold testing system that I recommend for all my clients. You can check the show notes on this podcast or my website. I'm also going to include a list of two of my favorite whole food vitamins. So I hope this helps get you started on the right track because this is this is one step at a time, guys. One step. And as always, I want you to let me know how you're doing with this challenge by commenting on my Instagram or Facebook pages with your progress and tell me what you find. Don't forget to check out findgold.org for more information about ADHD-friendly diet suggestions. Hey guys, this is Sandy. Thanks for spending the time with me the last 30 minutes or so um, and listening to me um, share what my experiences and some of the education out there. I hope it's been a blessing. I hope it's been encouraging. I hope it has empowered you to take the next best simple steps toward recovering good brain health. If you find this content helpful, please share this content. Thank you for being patient with me as I step outside of the clinical world and into the crazy podcasting world. Uh, I appreciate you guys hanging in there on the bloopers and everything along the way. But um, for sure, if this is helpful, pass it along to someone you think might benefit from the content. Leave me a like, leave me a share on your favorite podcaster that you're tuning in on. And I'll talk to you guys soon. Until then, there is hope for lasting healing.